The hot August morning air clung to my skin, making breathing even more difficult. Machiko turned around. Good morning, Yuriko. She gave me a hug. I'm so happy to see you. It's been a long two months without you. But aren't you supposed to be going back to the country? I attempted to catch my breath. Papa decided that Sumio is as stubborn as he is, and we do not have to go back. Just then, Bisons flew overhead. We both looked up at the sky. There was no siren blaring. A voice from the loudspeaker perched on a pole at the front of the house announced that it was only a weather plane, and weather planes were not a threat as they had never been used in an attack. To this hallowed ground. That's writer Kathleen Birkinshaw, daughter of a Hiroshima atomic bomb survivor, reading from her inspiring novel The Last Cherry Blossom, in which she details the life in the Japanese city before the bomb. That passage was set on the morning of 6 August 1945, when the infamous mushroom cloud hit the city. The story follows a 12-year-old, Birkinshaw's mother. Through the eyes of a child, readers experience the horrifying destruction caused by the atomic bomb and its aftermath on society. 1945 was the year of the bomb. The objective, to create the ultimate weapon of destruction by the use of the power that locks the particles of the atom together. Here at Oak Ridge in Tennessee, it was done. Scientists from the United States, England, and Canada, not to mention the people the fascists threw out, like Fermi and Meitner and Teller, found the kind of uranium that would work, and they assembled enough of it to form a critical mass. 23 days after the United Nations Charter had been signed on July 16th, they tested it in New Mexico. 19 days after that, it was dropped on Hiroshima, and the war came to an end. That's an archive recording of a UN reporter summing up 1945, the year in which the atomic age began, along with the United Nations. Birkinshaw wrote the book to make sure new generations continue to learn about the event, and has discussed her mother's story in middle and high school classrooms across the world portraying both the beauty of Japan and its unique culture and the terrifying destruction caused by the Second World War, the novel reminds us of the dangers of nuclear weapons and the nuclear arms race. She really felt, I can't tell my story, my voice doesn't matter. And I'm just so glad that I was able to bring out in her that her voice did matter, her story mattered, and then for students or children who read the book will realize their voice matters, and they have a right to use their voice too. Kathleen Birkinshaw's mother passed away four years ago now, but when she read the first draft of her daughter's book, she found deep meaning in her own survival when everybody else she knew had died. It's an exercise in empathy, she says, raising awareness about the importance of the disarmament agenda. The numbers that you give out or the reason why we need the policies, it doesn't really resonate with them until they realize this happened to a real person. This could be my family. Hopefully the younger generation will start to say, well, wait a minute, this is important. This is what the news is talking about, and this is how it relates to people. I think that my daughter in seventh grade, when she said, please talk about it, she knew that hearing about somebody would make a difference. No.
I'm Anna Carmo of UN News, and for this edition of our Ladies On podcast, I sat down here at UN headquarters in New York with author Kathleen Birkinshaw and started by asking her to outline what the main message was of the last cherry blossom. The first part was obviously the story of my mom with the atomic bombing, so we don't use nuclear weapons again. But the other piece that I wanted to give was the background to kind of show that the children of Japan, you know, like my mother, they love their family, they love their friends, they worried about what might happen to them, and they wished for peace. And those are all the same things that the Allied children were feeling. So I really wanted to give the uh, the idea of what Japan was like at that time, what kind of, um, to show that they have festivals too, that they have the same kind of concerns with various family issues. Uh, then to also show that when something happens, there's that emotional connection. So it can kind of enhance what they already have in school, which isn't told very much about the end of the war, and it's just a mushroom cloud picture. So I really wanted to bring to life who was under those mushroom clouds that day. So I was um, lucky enough to be at the presentation oh, of the book thank you. Um, mm-hmm. before we talked, and um, I felt like it's still very emotional to you, even if it's something that you have been sharing for a while now. Can you talk a little bit about the feelings that you have when you share the story? Sure. I know how hard it was for my mother to talk about it. And when she chose to tell me, it was so moving because of the way she would cry. She was not someone who would cry very often. And to see her so devastated as if she was reliving it that very moment and it it stuck with me and since she passed away four years ago it becomes even more in my heart and I still hear her voice so I'm able to carry a piece of her with me and just to know what she went through and trying to put myself in that when writing the book as a 12 year old I really take a lot of what she said to heart and um, it's it just strikes me and and I think if I ever have a time when I read her words and I don't have any emotion then that's when there'll be a problem I would think that it um, it just means so much to me that she trusted me with that you know when After she read the first draft of it, she said to me, I always wondered, why did I survive when everyone else I knew died from the bombing? And she said, I couldn't tell my story, but I have you, and you can tell my story for me. And that's why she felt that she was still around. So that that stays with me. You also spoke a little bit about your daughter and how she is hoping to be able to continue to tell that story. Why is it so important that we continue talking about these issues these days and we continue to tell this story to the younger generations specifically? I think today it's too easy to say that it's happening on the other side uh, in various countries, in various issues that don't even involve uh, nuclear weapons. And I think it's very important to get that uh, person-to-person, the emotional um, empathy for someone else. Because otherwise, um, as I had said, that the numbers that you give out or the reason why we need the policies, it doesn't really resonate with them until they realize this happened to a real person. This could be my family. And all of a sudden, they may start to realize that, you know, the ones that we kept thinking are so different from us or don't belong here, then they realize they're not that different from ourselves. And look at them in a different way, realizing we all have that humanity connection. And, and if we don't realize that soon, 
I feel that we'll just start repeating the same deadly mistakes. And hopefully the younger generation will start to say, well, wait a minute, this is important. This is what the news is talking about. And this is how it relates to people and why we need to take it so seriously. And I, I think that my daughter in seventh grade, when she said, please talk about it, that just initiated so much. In my, and she knew, I think, you know, uh, even at, at her age in seventh grade, that hearing about somebody would make a difference. And, um, and she was right. She was right. You have been presenting also this um, story to middle and high schools for the past nine years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are the insights you take from children or from youth when you tell this story? It always amazes me when somebody will come up to me and say, I had no idea that that's how life was. I didn't realize that they would think about the same things or um, I didn't know what really happened, uh, the, the devastation and how many people lost their family members. And it's made them think about things in a, in a different light. Um, or when a student comes up to me saying that she's been in a country that's had a lot of war and she's had a lot of loss. And she says that there's some hope that she can gain some strength from reading what my mother went through and how she was able to somehow move forward and that she can use that in her own life. That stays with me, and, and that touches me deeply to know that it meant something to someone. And if just one person can get a message, something like that, then that kind of shows that I did what I wanted to try to do. I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about this idea of being discriminated in your own country um, and how that can relate to the refugee crisis in the actual days. Sure. Um, a year after the bombing, she went with another family member uh, to Tokyo. And when she was there, when they would ask, where are you from, when she would answer Hiroshima in the beginning, they really would physically take a step back from her because they didn't understand how uh, radiation would work. They thought if they were next to her, they might get it. Um, and it was hard for her. She didn't want to make friends right away because she was mourning her other friend. But it, it was just hard to strike conversations with people because they almost didn't want to approach her. And her accent, um, it was a little bit different coming from another part of Japan. And so that gave her away in the beginning. So she made a big point of learning how to speak in the Tokyo dialect more so than the Hiroshima. And so she felt she couldn't tell her story. She couldn't say where she was from. And then when she did come to the States after she married my dad, she also couldn't say where she was from because of the prejudice when she came over here, um, even though it was 10 years later uh, after the war. So she really felt... I can't tell my story. My voice doesn't matter. And I'm just so glad that I was able to bring out in her that her voice did matter, her story mattered. And then for students or children who read the book will realize their voice matters and they have a right to use their voice too and to be treated in such a way that is human. Did you ever feel personally the discrimination? I did. I was the only Asian Uh, child in my elementary and my middle school. And there may have been a couple in high school. Um, I was made fun of a lot. I didn't understand the way they made fun of me. They would tell me for my mother and I to go back to our country. I was born in the States, so I didn't understand it. My mother understood it. And, and she was just 
horrified that she expected it from to her, but she didn't expect that I would get that as well. Um, and the, the slurs that were uh, said to her as well, names that she'll, she always was so upset if she ever heard them being told. Um, it was very difficult because I didn't know that I could be, I couldn't embrace my, my Asian side, my Japanese side, uh, because it for the longest time, I felt if I do that, then I'm negating the American side. But I can celebrate both, and it can coexist. And, and that's why I feel today, too, for the refugees. They can celebrate both. They can be a part of something. And we, can't, we don't need to tell them, no, you can't do this. Or I think it all comes from the heart. And I think from experiencing that in small way, not exactly how they're going through it, but I think it's really important to, um, to realize that, um, as I said before, you know, there's just so much... We share so much with our emotional connection. That humanity that we have um, is the thing that we have most in common. And uh, when people realize that, I think they may, you know, they'll view things a little differently. You know, maybe a little at a time, mm -hmm. but it's a step. What does it mean to you to be at the UN today and being oh. presenting the book here? I wanted to pinch myself to, <laughs> to be sure that I wasn't dreaming. When I was invited to, to speak here, I was so honored um, because to me, uh, this well, the UN was created after World War II, and and to know that my mother's story, I could talk about her at the UN and maybe make a difference in some small way. That I I really have a hard time to explain how how joyous it makes me feel, how grateful that I'm able to do something like this and to honor her, my family, the victims in that way. Um, when I wrote this book, it took six years to do it, and it makes everything worthwhile of all the stuff that I've gone through, all the pain and trying to get things, um, being able to do this. If I do nothing else and I got the message out this way, I'd be very, very happy. Thank you. Thank you. Writer Kathleen Birkinshaw, an author of the novel The Last Cherry Blossom, which tells the extraordinary story of her mother, a Hiroshima atomic bomb survivor. That's it from this edition of our Ladies On podcast from UN News. I'm Anna Carmo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>